This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, let's get back into it. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. Updating a story. Well, the TSX, by the way, closed mid-afternoon due to a technical glitch. Of course, you know, days of late, uh, there's been a meltdown on all markets primarily, uh, and it's dialing into this coronavirus thing, uh, which I'll get around to here shortly. But uh, before we get to that, I mean, I want to talk about the economic impact that's been felt because of the blockades. And earlier today, I was talking to uh, the head of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture. She said, really, uh, they're in dire straits, the farmers are, and uh, really at a tipping point. Uh, Many could lose their businesses. Uh, They could lose their crop. Uh, can't get to market, they can't get fuel, uh, propane to heat the barns and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a real mess. And uh, when we look at how this whole thing has been spawned, you know, I get it that the prime minister has sort of painted himself into a corner by uh, having to deal with this triangulation of environmental concerns, ameliorating the West, saying resource development is still important. Then you've got indigenous claims and rights and so on and so forth. Peter Sherman, let me ask you if maybe, you know, uh, he has also forgotten that there are other indigenous peoples who are stakeholders here and would benefit. Uh, he didn't seem to be as representative of their interests as he might have if they were, say, a Quebec concern. And then again, uh, his what I'll call distorted sense for what constitutes reconciliation, to my mind anyway, uh, he has to wear a lot of this. Am I wrong? He does. And and I, I'm not going to get into what I think he is or isn't. I, I think if I look at the situation from the 30,000 foot level, I see a guy who, on the one hand, is very anxious to say, I'm sorry to any group he thinks was ever wronged in Canada. And there is no argument that uh, we've not done well by our indigenous people, along with a lot of other people. So say, I'm sorry, if you like. But if you're really looking for truth and reconciliation, the truth is that there are a lot of, not to say because I I don't know it, but I suspect a majority of Indigenous people who would like uh, not just a handout, but a hand up. And here we are in a situation where there are companies uh, that have been willing to uh, to provide that and on a very legitimate basis uh, give them opportunities that have been uh, kept from them for many, many years. The most recent example being the cancellation of tech, uh, the, uh, the stoppages on blockades. People keep saying it's natives, it's natives. It's not all natives. It's it's a lot of people. It's anarchists and so forth. So they're getting a bum rap there. Plus, they're on the receiving end or non-receiving end of some of the things that you talked about. Uh, to get back to 30,000 feet, if you want to integrate uh, people in Canada, if you want uh, Indigenous people to really be part of a truth and part of a reconciliation, you've got to treat them the same way everybody else is treated. You've got to end problems like this, and you've got to make it possible for the completion of pipelines that, for God's sakes, uh, Native tribes themselves negotiated and said, we want not only as uh, as opportunities for companies to traverse our lands, but for our people to have good jobs. And this prime minister has been abysmal at this. Well, let me ask David Wills then, uh, you know, again, the contention that he's really primed the pump of dissent and loosed the dogs of disruption. Uh, Fair claim that he, I mean, he's the guy who's really central to all of this narrative. Well, I I think we'll we'll all agree that he set a very high bar for himself uh, back when in 2015, when he first became prime minister. He's, he, made some big promises towards uh, Indigenous people and First Nations. He said all the right words. He did all of these things, set up these commissions and so forth. But it, it's the there's still no trust that is built up because the actions and the words don't always align. His. 
with the, the his and the government of Canada, like you know, he's representing the government of Canada now, but it's it is a history. Uh, you know, for 13 years, the government of Canada has been fighting uh, First Nations on a uh, a child issue about properly resourcing children, and they're fighting it still to this day. So they're delaying that payment, even though they they keep losing in court. Uh, and you know that doesn't build up trust. There's so many of these communities that don't have clean water that we're all promised that this was going to change. That doesn't build up trust. And then what you have is, you know, I think Peter correctly identified that th- this is not a homogenous group that all thinks together and votes together under a system that we think for ourselves. First Nations see themselves as nations, not as part of a group of First Nations. So they, they see themselves distinct, each one of them, which makes it much more complex than we would like it to be. But without the trust, you can't move forward on these things. We have built pipelines in this country. We have done these things. But when you shortcut it and when you cherry pick the the ones that you that you choose, which is some of the things that has happened, is that this is what happens. And you know, as Peter's right, that you know the other people were joining the these demonstrations. And some, you know, I, I won't disagree that some may have been anarchists, but other people they use these opportunities to get the government's attention when they've got it. And, you know, we saw the same thing with the Yellow Vesters and the United We Roll. We saw some... So you're uh, saying they're some, exploiting a crisis. Yeah, and, and it happens both ways. It's happening here. It happened on United We Roll with some white supremacists. But don't the, you think the, the prime minister has given kind of a social license to this kind of uh, disruptive well, behavior? I think being slow out of the gate prolonged it. You know, well, he, but let me he ask was, you then, hypothetically, if this had been a Quebec concern, because we know in the SNC-Lavalin thing, where uh, he was saying, my first job is to protect Canadian jobs, uh, do you think he was slow off the mark to do that for the folks out in Alberta? Stephen? I, I, yeah, I, I, he needs to be on top of this and, and, and be certain and deliberate. And I think that's the root cause about all of this, is the uncertainty around it. You know, people don't understand the prime minister's position on it. That spawns protesters. They sense a little bit of weakness here or uncertainty. And what do they do? They double down and they they do what they're going to do. I think the fact that you brought it up well, uh, David, is that, you know, who is the indigenous community? How do we understand them? It's a different government structure than maybe as a as we are as a nation used to dealing with. So, you know, who 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 is in charge, who has a say? You know, we're trying to understand that. I think your average Canadian, self-included, don't understand all of the complexities in, in and out. But the Prime Minister needs to help us get to the bottom of that and understand who it is that has objected to this and, you know, what they're trying to accomplish with all this and protect Canadian jobs because the jobs that he's also protecting are the ones that are going to go to the Indigenous communities that will benefit from these projects and benefit in a big way. So if he's, if he's on board with the pipeline, then say so and move on with it. You know, the other thing, I mean, I'm kind of curious because the narrative seems to have been uh, primarily promoted that this is, you know, uh, the folks, the Wet'suwet'en uh, folk uh, are really against the project. Now, you're the media strategist here, David Wills. If you had to represent on those 20 band councils and elected leaders, I mean, wouldn't you be front and center saying, hey, how about us over here? We're actually, we're the majority within the Wet'suwet'en community and uh, we want to see this thing go through. I, I'm not so sure on that because I think, you know, the band councils uh, are a product of the Indian Act. And there's a lot of people in the First Nations and Indigenous communities that are offended by the Indian Act. So the Indian Act, you know, put the boundaries on reserves, moved people in there, set up these structures. So it was imposed on them. 
a lot of people reject that. And then others said, okay, let's work within this framework. And that's who those people are. Right. I'm not sure ringing the bell, like I think they are a lot more sympathetic to those that are opposing it than, than we want them to be. They want, they're saying, okay, under our rules and there are things that we support under these conditions and they negotiated that. But I don't think they're going to come out swinging against those who are not because that's not their way. And, you know, I think it gets into these complexities, but everybody says, well, they were elected, we should listen to them. And it's like, well, that's looking through our lens at it, and it's more complex. And and to Stephen's point, the prime minister, I think he does understand that, but he does have to navigate it. It takes some patience. But when you're slow out of the gate like they were... It just it it embodies it, and then it's it's harder to pull back. David, can we're I, doomed, make, though. We're, we're uh, doomed. Can I make a point here on on something that you said, David? Uh, when it comes to band councils, and I recognize that that is a, a form of government that looks a lot like I don't know mayor and council in any given town, and maybe it's more a product of uh, what we imposed. I think that's what you were trying to say. Um, but if that's the case, then the suggestion also has to be that these band councils, which seem to represent people who want to be represented, might have negotiated in bad faith. And I don't think they did. I, and and what, from everything that I've looked at, and I don't think I've looked at anything you haven't, it seems to me that the majority of the people on these reservations want the jobs, want the pipeline, recognize what it is they bargain for, and are just as disappointed as the rest of us are that we're stuck in this morass where our prime minister, unlike, say, the president of the United States or uh, the prime minister of, uh, of the UK, he hasn't gotten on television and said, I want to speak to the people and told us what he thinks. It's, it's in snippets and, and uh, little uh, news bits that are put across a screen or on radio or quoted in a newspaper that we, we try to put together what it is that our prime minister thinks. We don't really know. By the same token, I mean, uh, couldn't we say that constitutionally uh, there are protections for the aboriginals or indigenous nations and, uh, you know, they're constitutionally protected as far as that's concerned by having a voice and uh, those voices and, uh, you know, the uh, requirement to consult and so on and so forth is all built in. Stephen, you wanted to add? Well, yeah, I, I think we, we have these processes in place and the best thing we can do is stick to them and not waffle or, or go off uh, off on a tangent. And, and by sticking to them, we also show respect to those nations to, to do and do what we agreed to do. But I think we are destined to fail unless we have figured out a way to have a relationship with a hundred, you know, a hundred or more different competing interests. And I think, you know, challenge over to the prime minister, the issue that gets to needs to be solved is beyond just this pipeline. It's how do you deal with so many diverse voices in there and how do you uh, set that as a diplomatic relationship between the, the nation of Canada and, and this mass of different people. And well, there has is, to be is a that structure. an internal question that has to be addressed within the nations, the indigenous nations themselves? Partly, but I think the prime minister's leadership has to come in on here and realize that this is a, a structural problem and we will not have a success until we've figure that out. We can't even tackle the disagreements until we figure out who we're trying to agree with. All right. Well, I, that was... but just one point on this is that there's this outrage and demand that, oh, these projects, tech in this pipeline, we want it now, we want it now, we want it now. Where is these same support saying, okay, Canada should live up to the promises it made to these communities for clean water, for the proper compensation for children, even though the I don't disagree. I mean, it gets back to your original point. The guy was talking big on reconciliation, never lived up to those precepts. Yeah, and and this this is the, we we can't underestimate that. And Jason Kenney's like... So he still then has to carry the ball or wear the goat horns. We have to deliver. Canada has to, we can't 
expect them to to negotiate with us when we when we don't fulfill our obligation well, the other way. Then you agree with me, David. You agree with me about what I said no, that's about a terrible the prime thing minister. To say. Well, <laughs> no, you put the jokes aside. What I said about Justin Trudeau and not stepping up. Essentially, that was the summary, not stepping up. Essentially, you've come around to the same point I started on. I want to know what he thinks. I'm for clean water for, for Native uh, people and their villages and so forth. I'm for all of that stuff, and I think everybody is. But if you say you're going to do it and five years goes by and you haven't touched it, you've got to speak about it. All right, enough of the love in between you two here. I can't uh, countenance that. <laughs> Get a room. <laughs> yeah, let me ask. Uh, Stephen Holiday, by the way, on the coronavirus, uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't bring that into the equation. Has the city any plans specifically to deal with this? Yeah, like any major organization, uh, pandemic plans, emergency plans are developed. Uh, you know, and they, uh, they are, there, are, there are ways to deal with this as the situation changes. And that's, that's aside from our core function with the chief medical officer of health and the work that she does. But the you know the takeaway is is any organization should be thinking about this, not just the city, because it has implications and people just in general. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot, not just as a, my role as a counselor in this, but uh, but even just as a, as a father and a member of a family. You know how how will we manage through if uh, the flu season becomes really bad this go around, and uh, and making sure we got things in place at home and and plans to take care of people. All right. Well, the flu, I want to distinguish that from coronavirus, which uh, they have no answer for, and they really don't know uh, how this thing may spin or spiral into potential pandemic. But, you know, I don't know if we're putting the cart before the horse. I mean, we can exercise caution, concern, but then it gives way to uh, alarmism, even to the point of hysteria and bordering on paranoia. So I don't know where on the spectrum we are right now. Uh, David, how do you perceive it? Because it has economic consequences. You've seen the markets, of course, and a lot of people are not going out, uh, you know, and being told by the, the health authorities you ought to stock up on supplies. I just finished with my perishables uh, for the Y2K. I had those stockpiled in the larder. So uh, who It's knows? an old case of beer, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little skunky. skunky. It yeah. still does the job. Yeah, it's a Dow cream porter, <laughs> but uh, who was fussy back in those days? But David, on that point, though, do you think that, uh, you know, where do you see us on the spectrum? Well, I think we can't get distracted with market fluctuations and things because the number one priority is still uh, keeping people healthy and preventing people from getting sick and from dying. Uh, I'm going to give a, a, a shout out to the city because I think the city of Toronto uh, from, you know, uh, Dr. Eileen Davila and the 1800 uh, people who work with her in public health have done a very good job. I think they they provide very good information. There's a calming influence. Uh, they share information well. Uh, they talk about it to stop people from being hysterical. Uh, you know, there was one thing, you know, that the province and the, and the federal government said about stockpiling medications. You can't actually do that. Like you know, there's you, you know, yeah. you have to you have to go and get these sure. advanced prescriptions, if and there's other Tylenol, things. You're Tylenol. Maybe it'd be a good time to buy a bottle. Yeah, but that that's not the same as you know, gee, you know, can you give me six months worth of insulin? That's yeah. not how it works. So, I, I think we have to be careful not to frighten people. Uh, but I do think our public health system is excellent. The like I know that they've flagged this. They've been monitoring this and preparing for this as soon as it became news months ago, before the rest of us heard it. So I think that that's very good, but I would caution that, you know, 1,800 people in public health are part of QP79. And, you know, they like they, we have to put the value on these jobs because they've been working very, very hard for months. And I think we have to remember that, that this is a very valuable service that you don't necessarily see every day, but they have been keeping us healthy. Listen, if somebody wanted to fly in from or to uh, the Lombardy region of Italy or to Iran, because we know these are hotspots, South Korea, Wuhan, whatever, 
Would you, gentlemen around the horn, exit question, uh, deter them from doing that? Do you think there should be some kind of sanctions, limitations on travel? There should be sanctions and limitations on travel. I'm not going to specify what they are because I'm not uh, conversant enough to be able to make that decision. But at the very least, we should be doing a much uh, more severe form of screening at the airport uh, from uh, and, and all our airports where we have foreign flights coming in because we've identified some region. That said, we're still going to have problems in the future, whether it's a pandemic as in 80% of people get it? I don't know. But uh, to hitchhike on some of the things that that, uh, David was saying, I think that for the most part, people are scared out of their minds because of what they've been told. And from what I've got from my health minister at this point, I know that I should go out and buy two of those great big $20 bottles of ibuprofen to keep our fever down in case we get it. And I better buy some more Campbell's Chunky Soup and some cereal. All right. I, other than that, I don't know anything. All right. Well, the question is whether or not uh, it's been irresponsible reporting on this or it's very responsible. Stephen, exit word. We need every bit of information we can and just make sure the, the reporting is responsible and fact-based and you can't go wrong topics worthy of discussion peter sherman david will stephen holiday we'll do it again next week thank you again to uh robbie and mary and you thanks for listening to the john oakley show podcast be sure to rate review and subscribe for free at apple podcasts google podcasts and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio 